Welcome back to our series of satellite symposium from the ONS meeting. For our next symposium, we focused on multiple myeloma, and nurse practitioners Ms. Beth Payman and Ms. Tiffany Richards presented cases to our audience and to oncologists Dr. Sagar Loniel and Irene Gobriel. Myeloma is frequently discussed in terms of the patient eligible for and not eligible for transplant, and the first two cases were older patients who were not being considered for transplant therapy. We began with a patient presented by Ms. Feynman, an older woman who presented with pain in her chest and leg while playing golf. My patient was a 74-year-old, and she had lost her husband about five years prior to diagnosis. She was actually very active, golfing three times a week, which in Cleveland, Ohio, you can only do during the summer months. <laughs> so she obviously presented during the summer. And she was very involved in her church group. She didn't have family that lived in Cleveland, Ohio with her, but they were very close, actually communicating electronically. She was very proud that she had just gotten an email address when she was diagnosed. She presented with a sternal mass. She had had breast cancer in the 1970s, so when she had chest pain and noticed a bump, she was obviously concerned that this was her breast cancer. In order to diagnose multiple myeloma, you tend to have to have a tissue diagnosis, much like any cancer. So they stuck a needle in the mass and found that these were plasma cells. Again, plasma cells are important for immune function and to protect us from getting sick, and hers were not working. So when she was diagnosed, we had the discussion, though, that while this is not necessarily curable, she was older in age, she did not want to have a stem cell transplant, but we felt that this was very treatable. Sagar, any comments on the clinical presentation? Yeah, I mean, I think that this lady was actually fairly fortunate that her disease presented in a way that allowed it to manifest with really only a chest wall mass. She didn't have a lot of the anemia or fatigue or specifically renal dysfunction that often is associated with these older presentations. And as you know, older patients tend to be a little bit more frail, and so they tend to be more sensitive to these symptoms. But I think she was fairly fortunate to get caught early. Beth, what about this patient's psychosocial status? She was very independent. She had relied on her husband for many years, but when he passed away, she was charged with taking over control of her finances. So she had two sons that lived out of the state, but it really herself and her network of friends. Irene, what would you say to a woman like this? She's 74 years old in terms of, you know, even if she wanted to say, you know, what's the chance that I'm going to be alive in a couple of years? What's the chance maybe I'm going to die something else? How do you discuss that with patients in general? And what would you have said to this woman? Yeah, this is a very important question, especially now that multiple myeloma is changing significantly into survival. So the old numbers that we used to give to all the patients, including what's already posted out there, the three to five year survival is no longer true. Yes, myeloma is an incurable cancer, but it's becoming now a very chronic disease. So patients can live with it and sometimes die from something else and not from the myeloma. So it's very important not to get that three to five year survival number and give it to the patients. Beth, what was this lady's approach to information? Was she just, you know, tell me what to do, I don't want to hear about it, or, you know, coming in with a stack of internet printouts? It was actually the sons that really wanted to seek out the information for her. Although the over age of 65 is the biggest group of what they call silver surfers, and they seek out information in many cases, she really trusted the healthcare providers and the nurses to guide her to what the best treatment was. So Tiffany, if a patient says to you, you know, well, where do I go to get more information? What do you tell them? 
I generally tell them to go to either the International Myeloma Foundation or the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation to get their information, just because that information is reviewed by physicians who are actively working in the field so that they know that it's accurate. There's a lot of information on the web that may not provide them with the accurate information. I've had patients who've come in said, oh my gosh, I'm only going to live for two years, I found this on the internet, and that may not be accurate. So I always try and steer them to a website that is going to have the accurate information. Beth, how did this active, healthy woman adjust to this diagnosis? This 74-year-old lady, she was such a sweetheart, but really, she was overwhelmed. She was by herself, she was a widow, and her sons lived out of state. What was her greatest concern? loss of independence. And I think many of you in the audience have heard that from your patients as well. She didn't want to have to give up driving. That was the big thing. Sager? To me, the one worrisome issue when a new patient comes to see me is that they're alone, because I think it just means that it's going to be not necessarily a tougher battle, but you know that every time you talk to a patient, you usually have to say something two or three times, especially after the first visit, because that information is so new and they're in a bit of shock after the original diagnosis. And rather than saying this is an incurable illness, what I often ask them when they ask me that question is, do you have hypertension? And they say, yes. And I say, do you take your antihypertensives? And they say, yes. And I say, are you cured of your hypertension? And they say, no. And I said, myeloma is the same way. And I think that's really the approach that we need to think about, is that there are subsets, obviously, that are not like hypertension, but many patients can live a long time with disease control. And Irene, you know, it's interesting. We're going to talk about breast cancer at lunch today, but one of the things that's really revolutionized breast cancer is the website Adjuvant Online, where you put in the patient characteristics, and it gives you some estimate of what's going to happen in terms of benefits of treatment. But one of the things that's woven in there is... What's the chance the patient's going to die of something else? And when you start getting up to 75, 80, 85, those numbers start increasing substantially. And I guess if you think about it, if you can prevent the myeloma from being symptomatic and they die of a heart attack, you know, it's kind of like a functional cure. Yes, that's very important. And actually, Ken Anderson says that a lot. What is the definition of cure? And if cure means that you're dying of something else, and yes, you still have the disease, but it's still under control, then we could have achieved something. And we have come a long way in myeloma from the time when we only had melphalan and prednisone, and most of our patients were dying really rapidly, to now really a chronic disease. Maintenance therapy is used all the time, and patients are living years and years. So we have to change the way we think of myeloma and how we tell our patients the disease is going on here. So in all four of these ONS symposium here, we're going to integrate new research information into the discussion. And Beth, is it fair to say that no corner of oncology is moving faster in terms of clinical research than multiple myeloma? Absolutely. I've been focusing on the care of myeloma patients for over 10, 12 years, and I've seen so many new emerging therapies. The three main therapies that we're using in combination with steroids are bortezomib, lenalidomide, and thalidomide. And there are so many other emerging things, but what's really neat is, like in our case study, and I'm sure we'll talk about her treatment, we can compare and mix and match to help decrease the side effects with the different agents. And so I've been able to see the supportive aspect of nurses being able to address the side effects so they can stay on treatment longer. Let's just talk about sort of conceptually how you approach the newly diagnosed patient, Irene, and maybe using this patient as an example. 
What are the goals of therapy that you'd be thinking about? 74-year-old woman, she does have pain, but it's localized. I mean, theoretically, it could be radiated to relieve that pain. But how do you overall approach the assessment of a newly diagnosed patient? Sure. So the first thing we usually think is, how old is this patient and are they transplant candidates or not? Because it helps you decide which types of treatment you will have. What is the purpose of doing a transplant? Are you trying to cure a patient? And how do you decide? Is it purely age? Or how do you decide whether or not they're going to be considered? Very good question. And again, transplants in myeloma is changing significantly. What we usually talk about transplant in myeloma is the autologous stem cell transplant, although there is definitely allogeneic. And autologous is really basically based on high-dose chemotherapy, trying to wipe out as many myeloma cells as possible. It's not curative in intent at all. And in fact, we are now changing the way we think of transplant in the era of novel agents, whether we're adding novel agents to the transplant or even considering not doing transplant in a lot of those patients and delaying it or not doing it at all. So even transplant that was the standard of care in myeloma just a few years ago is becoming an option now that we offer our patients and not all of them have to get it. So Tiffany, what about age and transplant? Is there an age where you're definitely not going to consider transplant? And what is the concern that the patient's you know, going to die because of the treatment? I think it really is going to depend on which center you go to. We're a major transplant center. So we look at our performance status. We don't have an age cutoff. And so you can have a 78-year-old who has a performance status of zero, and you can have a 65-year-old who has a performance status of two or three. And so really, we're looking at each individual patient, looking at their comorbidities, and looking at their performance status in order to determine if they are a transplant candidate or not. And Sagar, again, what are we trying to achieve with the transplant, is there any chance of curing people, or are you just trying to delay the progression of disease? Yeah, I mean, I think the cure question, I think as Irene pointed out, rarely occurs with autologous transplant, but we know from randomized trials that patients who have an autotransplant in general live longer than patients who don't. And I think the age question is an important one, because I've said yes to 78-year-olds, and I've said no to 50-year-olds. And it has nothing to do with age. It has to do with function and performance status. I saw a 75-year-old as a new patient on Tuesday who is, he looks like he could go out and play college football. I mean, that's how good this guy looks. Uh, I I don't know that I'd want him to get hit, but that's a separate (laughs) question. And so this guy, I think, very easily was a patient that we could talk about collecting cells and taking to transplant. Well, I mean, Beth, this woman sounds like she was in pretty good shape. Did you bring up the issue of transplant? Well, she golfed three times a week, and she was very active. But another aspect that was not yet mentioned is patient desire. She had a friend that went through a transplant in the 1980s for leukemia, and we all know how toxic the allogeneic transplants can be. And so the word transplant was definitely a turnoff at the beginning. And we said, well, if this is something you're really not going to want, that's when we added the Melflan. As you know, Melflan can impair your ability to harvest pluripotent stem cells. So that was a big discussion before we decided to give melphalan. So same exact patient, 68. Would have been a different discussion, 64. Is there a number where you would have said, you know, hey, transplants in your future? No real cutoff. It has to do with patient desire and performance status. And insurance does play a role, quite honestly, in many cases. But really, over the age of 70 in my institution, we really do not push. Beth, let's get back to this woman. Can you talk about the diagnostic workup? As I mentioned, she had a fine needle aspirate that showed kappa-restricted plasma cells. Now, just to take a brief step back, 
you know, plasma cell myeloma is a dysfunction of the plasma cells, and it's typically in the majority of our patients has a heavy chain and a light chain component. The immunoglobulin structure looks like a little Y, and a complete immunoglobulin was dysfunctional in her. Hers was IgG kappa type of myeloma. We found that from doing a bone marrow biopsy and typing her serum and her urine. Again, it's like a puzzle. We need to look at all these different pieces, parts. So she had IgG kappa, multiple myeloma. Her stage was one. We currently, we use a staging system called the International Staging System. They looked at about 10,000 charts in 17 countries and found that beta-2 microglobulin in your serum was a large predictor of how well people did. It can be elevated if you have renal dysfunction. It can be elevated if you're sick in the ICU, but it can be also elevated in our patients with myeloma. Hers was not elevated, though. She had normal kidney function, and her beta-2 microglobulin was about 2.5, which was really good for her. She had 17% plasma cells, and we want to look for the CRAB criteria. When we refer to that, it means that our patients need to have greater than 10% plasma cells in their bone marrow, which she had. We also need to have a peripheral blood or urine abnormal monoclonal protein, which she had, and organ damage. C is hypercalcemia. R is renal for renal insufficiency from the myeloma, not anything else. A is anemia, or B is bone lesions. Now, you only need one of those crab with the plasma cells and the stuff in the blood. She had the bone lesions, the plasmacytoma, and we also did a skeletal survey, just x-rayed her bones and found a femur lesion. So she met criteria for the diagnosis. Sagar, any comments in general about regimens that are being used in a non-transplant situation like this one? Yeah, I mean, I think that the predominance of existing phase three data supports one of three potential regimens in the context of a transplant ineligible patient, and that is an MPV-based approach, melphalan prednisone with bortezomib, an MPT, which is melphalan prednisone with thalidomide, or RD, which is lenalidomide with dexamethasone. And I think those three probably have the most amount of phase three data and long-term follow-up to give us some sense of what are reasonable approaches for these patients. So Irene, in a patient like this, what kind of regimen would you be thinking about? Yeah, so we like to complicate things too much now with all those new studies, (laughs) right? And with all those alphabetical soup that we have. But basically you're thinking if it's a patient who's not going to transplant and you can use melphalan, like you said, melphalan and prednisone is one of the old standards that we had. If you add to it bortezomib or thalidomide, or lenalidomide, then you do much better. So you start to look at this patient and you can say, I can do one of those three options. Maybe someone with a lot of bone lesions or a lot of renal failure or a lot of light chain, I may use bortezomib because that's a good one. Or if they have bad cytogenetics, I would use bortezomib. Someone who doesn't want to come to the clinic once a week or twice a week, you may want to use lenalidomide. So these are a few things that we start thinking, which option do I want to use for my patient? We also want to talk today a little bit about kind of what to say to patients and particularly what you all say to patients. I'm I'm curious in terms of specific agents what you say. So Tiffany, a patient's getting melphalan. What are some of the things you might want to bring up to that patient? I review the risk of the decreased myelosuppression, go over management of thrombocytopenia and neutropenia, make sure that they're coming in for regular lab checks so that if they do drop their counts that you're intervening early. Discuss with them about the symptoms of thrombocytopenia, making sure that they're aware that if they have bleeding that they're contacting the clinic or coming to the emergency room. Also reviewing the risk of infection is really important and making sure that they understand that not only does the chemo 
chemotherapy make them at risk for infection, but the disease itself. And so making sure that they know if they have upper respiratory symptoms or any other symptoms of infection that they're contacting the clinic. Also reviewing just precautions for nausea and vomiting, making sure that you have something, an anti-emetic that you can give them so if they do develop nausea, that they have that at home with them. So Beth, what did you all decide to treat this woman with and what happened? So our lady decided to go a little bit more aggressive. So malflon and prednisone has been the standard of care for elderly non-transplant patients since the 1960s. We know that only about 50% of the people will respond, meaning they'll go into remission, and they don't stay there for terribly long in many cases. So for her, we added bortezomib, and Dr. San Miguel and his colleagues published data, which was kind of a study she was on, comparing the bortezomib malflon and prednisone with standard of care malflon and prednisone. So what we saw in the study was that patients did better. Now at ASH this year, the American Society of Hematology meeting, they further used this VMP, the bortezomib malflon and prednisone. And and as Dr. Gobriel mentioned, gosh, do they do better if we add a maintenance? So in this study, they added two arms where they either got bortezomib thalidomide or bortezomib prednisone maintenance. And in the group that got maintenance, they did better. So we're continually revising things. But what our case study had received was just the bortezomib malfun and prednisone. And she did well. But after two cycles, developed a side effect that a lot of us nurses have to deal with, which is peripheral neuropathy, which is very debilitating. What exactly did she present with? So her type of peripheral neuropathy was just primarily numb. Now, she was a golfer, and she was very active, and she liked to cook as well. And so when her fingers started getting numb and her feet started burning, she got really concerned because, remember, independence was her biggest fright. And so because of that, we actually reduced the dosing of her bortezomib. Now we have data to support this, going to weekly dosing, where we don't necessarily go to twice weekly. Again, it's very immature. We need more longer-term follow up, but for her, we went to weekly bortezomib, and she actually did quite well in terms of that going away. Irene, what fraction of patients actually have neuropathy at presentation related to myeloma, and why do they get this? Yeah, so we probably underestimate how much neuropathy is happening with patients with multiple myeloma. It could be even not that symptomatic, and then when they start treatment, it starts showing up. But in general, I think it is the 5 to 10%. And what's going on sort of pathophysiologically? How does myeloma relate to the peripheral nerves? Yeah, it could be either the position of light chain, or it could be antibodies. So anti-mag antibodies and other antibodies that we don't even identify right now can actually go and attack the nerves. So attack the peripheral nerves. Yeah. So, Sagar, as Beth was saying, we've been learning a lot, particularly in the last year, about how important the schedule is of bortezomib in terms of neuropathy. Can you comment on that? Yeah, there are actually two studies that have looked at going to a weekly schedule. The Mateo study, looking at maintenance therapy, actually gave one cycle of the twice-weekly bortezomib and then switched to weekly The Palumbo, which was the VMPT versus MPV, also looked at weekly, and both of those showed a pretty significant reduction in the incidence of grade 3, grade 4 neuropathy, almost making it non-existent. So, Tiffany, how do you assess a patient, or how should a patient be assessed, for example, who's on bortezomib? Of course, a lot of the agents that we use nowadays in oncology, the taxanes, many of them will cause a peripheral neuropathy, but specifically related to the patient with myeloma, What do you look for, and how important is it to try to sort of pick this up early? 
Well, it's really important to pick it up early so that we can make the proper dose modifications to hopefully minimize uh, grade 3 and grade 4 peripheral neuropathy. A couple of key things I think that are really important. One is to just ask the patient, are they having numbness and tingling? Are they having weakness? Are they having cold sensation to their hands or to their feet? Because a lot of times patients may just feel like their hands are really cold and no matter what they put on their hands, they can't get them warm enough. Also doing a physical exam, having them button up their shirt, watching them walk, things like that. But I also think it's also important to talk to the caregiver because I find that a lot of times patients will hide their symptoms because they're afraid of the dose reductions. They don't want to stop their treatment. And the caregiver will usually come forward with the information because of the concern that they have. So I think it's really crucial to not only talk to the patient, but also to the caregiver. Yeah, I mean, that's really a common thing I think that we see in oncology. The patients are afraid to talk about side effects because you might reduce the dose and they're so concerned about the cancer. I don't know, when you said that, I kind of flashed on capecitabine in breast and colon cancer where patients, you know, we hear they don't want to tell you about the hand foot because they don't want you to reduce the dose. But what about the issue of the reversibility of the neuropathy? Irene, your colleague Paul Richardson published this paper looking at that question and in terms of, you know, picking it up early so that, you know, it can reverse. Maybe you can comment a little bit about how you approach this. Absolutely, and I just want to echo again that it's very important, and I think the nurse's role here is huge because so many times physicians, we go and talk to the patient, they say, no, I have no neuropathy, but then they come to the nurse and they actually say the details and they do tell them. So it's very important that interaction between physicians and nurses for patient care, especially for neuropathy, because if we pick it early and change the dose or change the frequency that we give the bortezomib, it makes a big difference. So this study by Paul Richardson and everyone was the APEX study where we were giving patients bortezomib. And patients, if we get them early with the grade 1 or grade 2 peripheral neuropathy, especially before it becomes painful peripheral neuropathy, which is like a one-grade extra, and you dose-reduce those patients or take them to a weekly schedule, most of those patients, 70% or so, will have reversible neuropathy and it will go away. Now, one thing that we published also, and I don't know if we have it here, is all the other medications that we give those patients and supportive care. And again, I want to give the credit to our nurses. So we have wonderful research nurses in our group who actually came up with a list of medications and supplements that we can give our patients to help them with the neuropathy, including some vitamins, amino acids, and then, of course, Neurontin and Cymbalta and Lyrica and all of those things. So it's very important to do the supportive care, but also to dose reduce when the time is right. And the frequency makes a big difference. I think the weekly schedule has made a huge difference for us now to treat patients with bortezomib for a longer duration. And certainly the frequency of neuropathy when you go to the weekly schedule dramatically drops, but also to address the patient's concern about, is this going to mean if I have to reduce the dose that there's going to be less efficacy. This study, Sagar, seemed to suggest that it really doesn't affect the efficacy. Yeah, this one, as well as the two abstracts that we mentioned that used weekly bortezomib, also demonstrated the duration of response and the response rates were similar. If I can add one quick thing to what I think Irene was mentioning, which I think are really good points, is if we think about a cycle of bortezomib, it involves three or four visits to the clinic, depending upon whether you do weekly or twice weekly. The patient sees a physician on one of those three or four visits, but they see the nurse on all three or four of those visits. And I think one of the key points that we've managed to use, and we learned this from Irene and her group at the Farber, 
was that nurses actually administer a questionnaire to patients every time a dose is given. So cycle two, day eight, there's a questionnaire that's given. And if that questionnaire is different, they then come back to the physician and say, are you sure you want to give the dose today? What I think is a mistake that we see in the community a lot of times is patients get dosed and dosed and dosed. And when they only see the physician once every three or four weeks, the neuropathy that's incipient is missed. And if you don't catch it earlier, you're not going to be able to reverse it. And also, in terms of, Irene, the issue of supplementation, you mentioned all these you know, vitamins, and I've heard about creams and things like that. I mean, is there any sort of scientific evidence that any of these things work? Actually, a lot of them were coming from scientific evidence from actually studies, even if they were small studies, about the benefits from those. So this is actually already published. Paul Richardson just published the supplements that we give to our patients. I would be just very careful with one thing. We noticed that patients who take high-dose vitamin C or patients who get green tea, Again, very high doses. The efficacy of bortezomib is much lower. So we're very careful now that some of those supplements may have been benign before, but now we're seeing that some of the patients may not respond to bortezomib if they're taking too many supplements. So again, it's a risk and benefit thing. But if you want to use coconut cream on the hands, that's fine, I think. Okay, we're going to go on to your case, Tiffany, in a second. But first, Beth, can you kind of bring us up to date with this patient, what's going on? So this lady had successfully taken about six cycles of the wortezomib malfun and prednisone treatment starting in 2006. The neuropathy was mild, but typically we try to look at the response. And the protein in her blood had gone away. And we didn't do another bone marrow biopsy because she only had 17%. And because the protein we could measure in her blood in the urine, we kept her off of everything. We mentioned that we think that maintenance keeps you in remission longer. Well, for her quality of life, she wanted to stop. Now, the protein came back in the last couple months, and she's restarted weekly vortezomib, and she's actually back into remission. So that's another point about this drug, is that if you're stopped and you're in remission, many people will respond again. So that's where she's at now. She's in remission and doing well. What's her state of mind? Have you seen her evolve? How has she sort of adjusted to this whole situation? Or more importantly, what's her handicap? (laughs) (laughs) Probably better than mine. (laughs) But she has actually adjusted. Her sons come and visit her four times a year. They take turns so that they're here pretty often. But now she's about 80 years old. And so she's kind of just lived with this. This is a chronic illness. She had mild diabetes that was controlled. So we kind of try to keep her away from steroids because as you nurses know, the steroids can increase the blood sugar. But in general, she's doing pretty well and adjusted to her illness and continues to be socially inactive. Still worrying in the back of her head. What if it comes back and I'm incapacitated? But generally doing extremely well. How did she react when you had to restart the bortezomib? She was okay with this. Dr. Loniel had mentioned the analogy, and I'm not trying to belittle the diagnosis when I say to my patients, you have diabetes and that's incurable. But I try to tell them that Many things in medicine and in nursing are incurable, but we try to manage them. So we're managing her chronically, and you're going to have to be on treatment from time to time. So when we restarted that, and because we're always monitoring her, we're taking blood work and urine studies every month. So she knew that we were watching. We jumped in before she was symptomatic when her protein was just going up. So she liked the idea of restarting therapy, actually. Okay, Tiffany, let's talk about your patient, the 80-year-old woman. 
Yeah, so this was an 80-year-old woman who initially presented with a history of back pain. And this is often the first presenting symptoms that patients may have. They go to their primary care provider saying that they have back pain. They may be given a trial of NSAIDs. The back pain doesn't get any better, and then further imaging is done. And so she actually had a CT of the spine, and she had a near-complete destruction of T9 with a compression fracture. And this was at an outside hospital where she was found to have this compression fracture, and she had a little bit of some core compression. And so they did... Um, core compression? So she had neurologic symptoms? She didn't. She didn't have any neurologic it's symptoms, actually, at imaging. the time. Just the back pain. But on imaging, she had some core compression. What was her life situation and her state of mind? She is a very active 80-year-old. She is actually a socialite and a real go-getter. You would never even think that she was actually 80 years old by the way she looks. Has a lot of spunk. Her children all live out of town, but she does have her nephew, who is a caregiver, and actually lives with her. So socialite, she was going to balls and all that? Oh, she, yeah, she's going to balls and doing fundraisers. And And what was the discussion like with her initially? Did you all get into the issue of curability, non-curability? And what was her attitude about information? We do. We went over that discussion with her. She's very laid back and just has a very kind of nonchalant approach to life. And whenever we give her bad news, she's always like, well, okay. (laughs) Well, we'll do what we have to do and just really approaches her life in that manner. So what was her, she was at an outside hospital. Mm -hmm. They tried to do some things related to her spine. Again, what exactly did they do? There was a procedure? Yeah, they did a posterior spinal fusion and a decompression surgery. Interesting. She had full-blown surgery, but Irene, there are also lesser approaches to these kinds of situations in the spine. What's been done there? Again, if there is spinal cord compression, like we're talking, you could potentially do the steroids plus radiation therapy. Uh, Surgical approach is one of the approaches. Sometimes it's harder to do, especially an elderly patient and so on. So this is definitely an emergency in myeloma, and it's very important not to wait until you have neurological symptoms. We always say back pain plus myeloma. Always look for spinal cord compression. Don't wait because you don't want to lose the opportunity to get those patients back out of trouble. How would you be thinking through Sagar, the approach to this patient, and is it different than you might have been thinking it through, you know, two, three years ago? Well, I think it absolutely is. I think there are so many more choices now for an 80-year-old, and I think the key, even if their performance status is not quite as good as Tiffany's patient was, that they can still clearly benefit from therapy. I mean, I think a lot of credit goes to the French for doing a trial where they randomized patients over the age of 75. So between 75 and 85, what I call the really, really old patients with myeloma, who are about a third of the patient population with this diagnosis. And in that trial, they managed in the experimental arm to improve the survival to almost four plus years. Now, if you think about four plus years, that's almost what you used to get out of a transplant for a 50-year-old 10 years ago. So we've almost been able to transpose what we did with younger patients to older patients. And some of that is through changing regimens. So, Tiffany, what happened with this lady? What were you all thinking about, and what did you do? Mm -hmm. So we went over the various treatment options with her. We talked about abortizumab-based regimen and alenalidomide-based regimen, and she really was afraid of having the peripheral neuropathy. And so she chose to go with alenalidomide-based regimen. And at that time, this was shortly after lenalidomide was approved for myeloma, and in the phase three trial that led to the approval of lenalidomide, we knew that there was a 
risk of thromboembolic events, about 20%. On that trial, though, patients were not prophylaxed with any anticoagulation. And so when the drug was initially approved, the hope was if we use low-dose aspirin, that maybe we would be able to just get away with aspirin as an anticoagulant and hopefully not have to use low molecular weight heparin or warfarin. And so she was placed on lenalidomide with pulse dexamethasone, meaning dexamethasone was given on days 1 through 4, 9 through 12, and 17 through 20. She was managed in our clinic frequently to monitor for any steroid side effects and any lenalidomide side effects. After her first cycle, though, she came to clinic and she had unilateral leg swelling. And so immediately she went for an ultrasound and she was found to have a blood clot. So what did you do then? So we placed her on anticoagulation. We held the dexamethasone because she had a dramatic response. After one cycle of therapy, she was actually in a remission. So what about the issue, Irene, of imid and thalidomide or lenalidomide-associated thrombosis? This is one major paper that came out looking at this. What do we know about it today as opposed to when, how long ago was this lady diagnosed? This was back in 2006. So what have we learned since 2006 about this? And maybe you can comment on some of the things that came out in this paper. Absolutely. And I think one of the most important changes that we've done since 2006 is actually cut down the dose of steroids, which was a big ECOG study ran by Vince Rajkumar at Mayo Clinic, where they randomized patients to lenalidomide and high-dose dex that we were just talking about, the days one to four and so on, the high dose, versus once a week, 40 milligrams dexamethasone. And actually, one of the biggest changes in that is the risk of DVTs and thrombosis in those patients. So we know that it's not only thalidomide and lenalidomide, but also the high those steroids and other chemotherapies that predispose patients. And again, I guess what they saw too was that the efficacy not only wasn't worse or decreased when they decreased the steroid dose, maybe even better. So the most important difference was actually that survival, yes. Those patients who died from infections, from heart problems, atrial fibrillation, believe it or not, with steroids and the DVTs, this is what made the difference. So for the first time, we used to say, well, give more because more is better. Well, actually, this time, less was better because those patients had a better survival. The response was a little bit higher in the high-dose steroids, but it doesn't make a difference, especially when your survival is different between those two arms. So, Beth, in a patient who's going to get one of these, two agents. These are some of the factors that came out, and we can maybe talk about which might have been relevant to this patient, but what are some of the key factors that are looked at in terms of predicting risk of thrombosis, maybe that will kick you into a little bit more aggressive prevention? We need to make sure if we're charged with starting our patients on thalidomide, we find out, are they in the hospital? Do they having any surgery? That'll put them at an increased risk of blood clots. Do they have a personal history? Were they flying to China 10 years ago and they had a blood clot and forgot to tell the doctor before they left the room? Do they have diabetes, concurrent heart or renal disease? These are all risk factors that we need to check for. Tiffany said that she was running, had a lot of spunk and you know, immobility is a risk factor for blood clot, but not necessarily age. So these patients should be on at least aspirin, 81 to 100 milligrams a day orally with their lenalidomide or thalidomide. Plus, we need to actually stratify them. If they have greater than two risk factors, they need to be therapeutically anticoagulated. And in many cases, we recommend low molecular weight heparin, which is an issue in the United States with reimbursement, or warfarin for a therapeutic INR between two and three. So getting back to patient education, Tiffany, what do you say to a patient who's going to begin lenalidomide and maybe contrast? it to what you might say if they're going to get thalidomide, 
in terms of patient education in general, sort of what do you want them to know about? And what did you say to this woman? So I always make sure I'm doing education regarding the signs and symptoms of DBT and PE. And I explain to them that if they have any of those symptoms, that they need to report that immediately, particularly if they develop acute onset of shortness of breath, because that can be concerning for a PE, and that they not wait and say, oh, it's nothing, because we all know how patients like to do that. I also talk to them about the importance of routine blood work monitoring, because with lenalidomide, you can have myelosuppression. I think it's also important to make sure that we're looking at not just the creatinine, but the creatinine clearance. We all know that patients who are older can have a creatinine of 1.2, 1.3, but have an impaired creatinine clearance. And lenalidomide is excreted via the kidneys, and so there are dose reduction guidelines that need to be made when given that drug. You know, one of the trickiest symptoms in oncology, I think, is fatigue. You know, you think about sunitinib, and, you know, which clearly causes fatigue. What about these agents, Sagar? You know, it's hard to, you know, I'm kind of tired, it's 6 a.m. here, you know. <laughs> but how do you dissect out the symptom of fatigue, and do you think that the IMIDs are associated with fatigue? Well, I think all treatment is associated with fatigue, whether it's the IMIDs or it's the proteasome inhibitors. Even steroids, while they may jazz you up in the beginning, chronically they are associated with fatigue. One of the first patients I remember who was on the Lendex versus Dex trial that got lenalidomide approved actually got on pulsed dexamethasone alone, and his biggest symptom was fatigue. So I think all the agents we use can bear into this, and I think modification of the doses. I mean, I think one of the most important lessons from that ECOG study was a confirmation from the French that high-dose steroids for older patients is simply intolerable. And I didn't really remember that until the ECOG trial came out, and I think this was a good example of that. So can you bring us up to date with this lady? Mm -hmm. So she was on single-agent lenalidomide for 17 months. She then developed a rise in her capital lambda ratio, at which point we added once-weekly dexamethasone. And then at her last visit, she had some disease progression, and so we added cyclophosphamide on days one and eight, and she's doing well. And again, how is she adjusting? Now it's been 17 months, she's taking oral therapy. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe she's a little surprised she's doing as well as she is, or just she's out there going to the balls and not worrying about it. She's just out there having fun. She, uh, a few months ago, went to Paris with her children and grandchildren, goes to Seattle, and is planning a trip this summer to Italy. Okay, well, let's switch over to the patients who are being considered for transplant. And here, again, we're starting to see combinations. You know, we've seen this all over oncology including breast cancer, colon, you name it, you know, combination therapy to try to improve response rate, hopefully without increasing toxicity. So, Beth, let's talk about your 58-year-old man. So briefly, this is a 58-year-old gentleman. He's married. He has two adult children, and he is a supervisor in a construction company. And he had started to develop some fatigue, but really nothing significant until all of a sudden he was hit with just, I can't move. And it was over a holiday weekend and couldn't get a hold of his doctor. So he went to the emergency department where he had a hemoglobin of 6.8. So he had significant anemia. His creatinine was 3.2, which is renal insufficiency. Actually, the National Kidney Foundation says that kidney failure is a creatinine greater than 3.0. And he was admitted to the hospital. They did a blood and urine test. So obviously he had the CRAB criteria of that. So far he had renal and anemia, the R and the A. The peripheral blood we checked and he also had this IgG kappa type of multiple myeloma protein. So the hematologist did a bone marrow biopsy which showed 70% plasma cells. We also did a test called cytogenetic testing on him. 
There are two tests, cytogenetics and fish, and we use fish for a lot of different malignancies, but the cytogenetics were available almost immediately within a few days. Actually, in our lab in the week, she had gotten the results, and it was positive for this deletion of the 13th chromosome, and this is considered on cytogenetics a poor prognostic factor in patients with myeloma. His beta-2 microglobulin was elevated at 6.2, and greater than 5.5 is actually stage 3. So with the deletion of the 13th chromosome on cytogenetics and the beta-2 that was greater than 5.5, this gentleman, unfortunately, we would consider in the high-risk category for not doing so well. Now, you talked about you know the workup, but what about him? What kind of mm-hmm. symptoms, if any, did he have? Yeah, it was just increasing fatigue over time that got significantly worse over a holiday weekend. So it wasn't any back pain pain or bone pain, like Tiffany's patient or my older lady with the sternal pain, it was just, I can't get up because I'm so tired. And really just put it on the back burner and you can make all kinds of excuses as to why you're tired. And looking back, do you think that was mainly from the anemia or it's kind of hard to separate? From the anemia with a hemoglobin of 6.8, it's most likely from the anemia. And he had the anemia probably because the plasma cells were crowding out the bone marrow, normal hematopoietic stem cells. And what kind of discussions went on with him in terms of, you know, curability, non-curability, prognosis. And again, was he asking a lot of questions or sort of leaving it up to you? Well, obviously, he's 58 years old, and he can't spell myeloma, let alone know what it is, as many of our patients. Because of this, it's very confusing. And so we have to have the discussion, just much like any of the nurses in the audience, what is myeloma? What can it do to your body? And he was sick. He had kidney failure and anemia. So the discussion was, these are your options. You can have a transplant, which we need to talk about because of your age. And his performance status was good. So you want to avoid things like which can impair your ability for stem cell harvest. And you can see the regimen he received was bortezomib, which is safe and will not affect your stem cells, thalidomide, which will not affect your stem cells, and dexamethasone. So and how long ago was it that he got that? It was 2008. Okay, so two years ago. So Irene, what would you be thinking about today in a patient like this? And how does the fact that this man had renal insufficiency enter into you know this decision and why do people get renal insufficiency yeah absolutely so people get renal insufficiency from so many things in multiple myeloma one of them could be the light chains or the proteins that they're secreting basically clog up the kidneys Benz Jones proteins or light chain nephropathy another thing could be from the high calcium that those patients get can also cause renal insufficiency and dehydration all of that the other things are amyloidosis can also cause it sometimes so there there are several factors that cause it, but myeloma kidney is very important, and you want to treat those patients very fast. If this is light chain nephropathy or myeloma kidney, you want to start those patients as soon as possible on treatment, and don't start to say, well, I'll treat them in a couple of days or come next week. Even if you have to admit them, just get them in, get some therapy immediately in them, and hydration, of course. Some of the treatment options we have are good to clear those kidney diseases as fast as possible. And they don't have any nephrotoxic effects. So, for example, steroids and vortezomib and cytoxin are all very good options. And thalidomide will not affect the kidneys. I would be careful with lenalidomide in those patients because it's renally excreted, meaning if I give you 5 milligrams of lenalidomide in a patient who has this kind of kidney disease, it will look as if I'm giving you 15 milligrams. 
So the toxicity will be a little bit higher. Now, what about tholidomide, which is what he got yeah. in the renal problem? That's perfectly fine. So the VTD regimen that he got, bortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone, is perfectly fine to get this patient in a remission as soon as possible and to try and clear up those kidney diseases as soon as possible. Now, you both have mentioned the issue of multiple agents, three or four of these new agents, or in some cases old in terms of cyclophosphamide. And Irene, your group, and Sagar, you were part of this really historic study looking at the, quote, RVD regimen, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone. Irene, can you talk about sort of how that came about? Yeah, absolutely. Again, it came from the idea that bortezomib and steroids are great, lenalidomide and steroids are great, why don't we try and put them together, but also preclinically in the lab, and again, with a lot of work from everyone involved in preclinical work, we find that those two drugs, the lenalidomide and the bortezomib, are synergistic, meaning one plus one is five or six. It really helps to put them together. So the design of the study, and it started as a phase one, we escalated the doses until we find the right dose. And we did actually, all of us together, two studies, one in the relapse setting, one in the upfront setting for newly diagnosed patients. And in the upfront setting, we reached full dose of lenalidomide and full dose of bortezomib, but you cut down the dose of steroids. Again, based on the previous ECOG study, you really cut down your steroids. So you can give full dose, 25 milligrams of lenalidomide, two weeks on, one week off, so that you have a three-week cycle. Bortezomib, you give it full dose, the 1.3 milligrams per meter squared, days 1, 4, 8, and 11. And then you cut down the steroids, and you can do anything with the steroids. We usually give it around the bortezomib because it helps with the fatigue, so they off, they after or day of bortezomib alone is fine. And again, try not to give that high 40 milligrams, maybe cut it down to 20 milligrams or so. And with that regimen, especially in the upfront setting, we've had a very high response rate, almost 100% response rate, with over 50% of the patients having a very good remissions, a VGPR or a CR or a near CR, which we used to think that you cannot achieve any of those high numbers. And now we're seeing this. Now, Sagar and all of us are trying to build on this excellent regimen. So one of the trials we're going to start very soon as part of a huge collaboration between us here in the U.S. and the French is a large study where we randomize patients to receive this RVD and then to collect their stem cells and not get transplant early, or half of the patients will get the transplant early. So we're coming to the point saying, do we even need transplant in myeloma in the era of this high response rate with novel agents? And then everyone will go on to receive maintenance therapy. So I think this will be a huge pivotal study for myeloma to try and understand what's the role of transplant in the era of novel agents. And I mean, we should put this in perspective. This was just presented, I guess, for the first time. It was in the last couple of years. It was just published, actually, for the first time. And Sagar, when we started to talk about this in our oncologist education programs, the first thing they were saying about is, whoa, hold on a second, toxicity. Now you're combining all these agents. There are other regimens where you bring cyclophosphamide in. What about RBD and toxicity? Well, I mean, I think RVD is a very well-tolerated regimen for the most part. There are patients who may be more sensitive to bortezomib-related side effects or more sensitive to lenalidomide-related side effects, and modification of those doses are the keys to being able to keep patients on study or on therapy. And I think one of the important pieces here is that the goal is to ask the question not just about who should have a transplant in the trial that Dr. Gobriel mentioned, but when. Does it matter when you have it? Because I think of transplant as one of the tools in my toolbox. I've got bortezomib, I've got thalidomide, I've got lenalidomide, I've got pomalidomide, carfilzomib, elotuzumab, cyclophosphamide, 
thalidomide, melphalan, dexamethasone, prednisone, <laughs> and Other transplant. Than that, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and transplant. And it's one of the tools. And so I think to say that we're going to throw transplant out, I think, is a little early because there may be subsets of patients who really do quite well with high-dose melphalan and consolidation. And so how to pick those patients, I think, is one of our real challenges. Tiffany, what have you seen in terms of these multiple agent regimens? They sound a little bit scary when you actually look at them, but in terms of how patients actually tolerate it. You know, we do a lot of education with our patients before they start on therapy. The Nurse Leadership Board actually developed with the IMF consensus guidelines for management of side effects for myelosuppression, steroid-induced effects, GI effects. And so that is really helpful, I think, particularly to community nurses, because it has information there that really helps you to identify which are the most important side effects and what is the critical component for patient education. And so I think if you're doing your patient education, you're telling them what side effects to look for, how to manage those side effects, or how to prevent those side effects, patients tolerate these drugs really, really well. Irene, we were talking about the scheduling of bortezomib. How does this actually play out in a patient like this? So that's a very good question. And again, you work around how the patient is doing. So you might start with the twice-a-week bortezomib just to try and achieve that response early on and then switch to a weekly value. Is there evidence that by doing that you get a quicker or better response? Or is it just sort of gut feeling? Part of it is evidence, part of it is gut feeling, and part of it is toxicity in the patients. You want to keep them on therapy as long as possible to get them into remission. So you don't want too much toxicity. And if it takes to be on a -a once-a-week bortezomib with a lower dose of lenalidomide, but getting a good response, that's better than getting them into such a high neuropathy rate and you drop them off the study or drop them off the treatment. So it's very important to balance it. And again, this is where I think it's more art than science in medicine, where you try to get those patients through the treatment, get them to a good response. I think weekly bortezomib is becoming really something that we use a lot now and we've appreciated it more. Sagar? One of the reasons you can do this is because you're using a combination regimen. I think if I'm using single-agent bortezomib, I'm not going to be quite as likely to go to a weekly schedule out the bat at the very beginning. But the advantage of the combinations is that you have other drugs that can pull some of their own weight as well. In this specific instance, the combination of an alkylator like melphalan with bortezomib, we know from both clinical and laboratory science, is synergistic. It's not one plus one equals two, or as I always say to my lung cancer colleagues, carbotaxel is like 1.1 equals 0.5. You're going backwards. (laughs) BMP is like one plus one equals six. And I think that's really what we're looking for in our combinations. We're looking for that kind of synergy when we put drugs together. Beth, can you bring us up to date on this patient? Absolutely. So this gentleman actually had received quite a bit of the wortezomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone, and went into a complete remission. I mentioned before he had a deletion of the 13th chromosome on cytogenetics, and that is the negative prognosticator. We think that this combination overcame that poor prognosis because... He achieved what's called a very good partial remission. Almost all of his protein was gone in his peripheral blood, and his bone marrow was down to about 5% plasma cells. So he would switch over, actually, because he developed neuropathy to lenalidomide maintenance. Incidentally, Um, when was the neuropathy picked up? It was after, oh gosh, he had been after four cycles. We reduced the dose, actually. We held it and then reduced the dose, and it was actually the nurses that picked up on it. Did he um, have, it was sensory or yeah. motor? It was, it was actually painful to him. Painful. Painful neuropathy, which you see a lot. Where was it? It was in his hands and feet, so it's often in that glove and stocking distribution, your gloves in your hand and your feet stockings. And so we held the dose initially. First, we got rid of the thalidomide, and then we held the doses and eventually dose reduced the vortex 
Ozumib, stopped therapy, harvested his stem cells because there is some controversy about whether or not transplant should be done. He did not want it. And with his hybrid-sided genetics, we didn't push it. Harvested his stem cells, though, and because his renal failure had reversed, and I think Tiffany mentioned the dose reductions as well as Dr. Gobriel, his creatinine clearance was about 35. So if you look at the package insert for lenalidomide, it'll tell you what dose they should be on. And so he was on a 10 milligram dose, which is what he's on now. And he continues to be in remission at this point. What's his state of mind and what's going on in his personal life? Well, when you tell people that all they need to do is take a pill a day and get some blood work to treat their cancer, in many cases, it's, you know, some people don't want to be on therapy. There is a lot of fatigue associated with it. GI side effects long-term from lenalidomide, such as diarrhea, can also be there, especially if they're off of the dexamethasone. And so it's just the constant blood work. And that is a burden to him, is having to get the blood work. But there's also comfort. Does he hedge? Yeah, actually, one of the side effects we did not mention, but our nurse leadership board published, are the side effects associated with lenalidomide and bortezomib can be some people will get constipation, but most will get diarrhea. So bulk-forming laxatives every day, such as Metamucil in the morning, is what I recommend. Of course, as nurses, we need to make sure that they don't have C. diff colitis or have been on antibiotics recently. So, But we can recommend you know, such kaopectate, peptobismol, and Imodium. I did want to mention a supportive care aspect that we didn't bring up yet. With bortezomib, there is an increased risk, about 13% of herpes zoster reactivation. And so our patients should be on concurrent antivirals such as acyclovir or famcyclovir or whatever you're giving to prevent that from occurring. And what have you seen in terms of the evolution of sort of his state of mind trying to deal with this illness? He's actually doing quite well and hasn't had to have a transplant yet, but we have the stem cells reserved in the bank if we need be. And so he's got a really positive state of mind. So, Sagar, you want to take a quick crack at the issue of, quote, maintenance and consolidation? That's kind of come up here. Things are, again, at the December, there was a bunch of stuff that was presented. The oncologists were trying to sort through it, and we survey them right now. They have a lot of questions about even what is maintenance in a transplant and a non-transplant. What do we know about that? Well, I think that there are lots of different factors that go into weighing the decisions about maintenance. I think... Well, what is it? What is maintenance? So maintenance is the delivery of therapy beyond your initial induction or beyond your transplant. So, for instance, if a patient had VTD and then had a transplant, if you gave them therapy after that, that would be considered maintenance. If you had an older patient, like in that first case that we talked about that got MPV as their initial induction for the prescribed, you know, 12 to 16 to 18 months, and then after that got additional therapy, that would be considered maintenance therapy. And is that usually the same, or do you switch? It depends, and I think that's really one of the questions. I think we are learning from some of our solid tumor colleagues who have this sort of class-switching maintenance approach where you use perhaps proteasome inhibitor based up front and then imid in the maintenance setting or vice versa. I think that those are certainly very interesting ideas that are having more data come about their use. One area that I think is very clear where maintenance is important is in high-risk patients. We know that high-risk patients, as defined by cytogenetics or FISH, can achieve great responses. We can put them into complete remission, but they don't stay in complete remission for very long. And I think we've all had cases or patients like that, and those are patients in whom, even if they get to a CR, I still put them on very aggressive maintenance therapy. And what are the kinds of agents that are used in maintenance? 
Well, for the most part, they're the same agents we use in the regular therapy. It's proteasome inhibitors, bortezomib, thalidomide, lenalidomide, steroids. I think that we're getting away from using drugs like cytoxan or melphalan because we know over time they can cause significant marrow injury and make it harder to treat patients down the road. And we're looking at drugs that now target not just the tumor cell, but perhaps the microenvironment as well to make it less hospitable for that tumor cell to live in a minimal state. Yeah, it kind of also brings up, Irene, the way these novel agents work. You know, when you hear about the imids and lenalidomide, you hear people talking about the microenvironment. I'm always like, well, what is it and what does it do? How do these agents actually work? How does lenalidomide work? How does bortezomib work? Yeah, so we know that the myeloma cells like to live in the bone marrow. Some of them circulate in the blood, but most of them are stuck to the bone marrow, and they love it there for one good reason. When they're adherent to those supportive cells, the stromal cells, the bone cells, then they are very resistant to therapy, and they grow much better. So that microenvironment of the bone marrow helps them to survive and help to protect them from chemotherapy. And we know now that a lot of those agents can kill myeloma cells, but also can affect that adhesion to the stroma, that adhesion to the microenvironment can make a huge difference in that remission that we're trying to get. So a lot of those new agents like bortezomib and lenalidomide not only work on myeloma cells, but can also affect that interaction between the myeloma cell and the stroma cell or the bone cell. We know even that bortezomib can help improve the osteoblasts, which help bone recovery and kill some of those osteoclasts that cause the lytic lesions. So all of those new agents not only kill myeloma cells, but also work on that microenvironment. And it is a very important factor in myeloma. So Beth, the patient who's going to get bortezomib asks you, how does it work? And I heard it's, quote, a proteasome inhibitor. What is a proteasome and how does it work? So bortezomib is a proteasome inhibitor and all of our cells need to degrade proteins. And so what happens when you give proteasomes, it blocks that garbage can, that ability to degrade proteins and chew them up and spit them out. And so when you put in the bortezomib in that cycle, the healthy cells can recover spontaneously within about 72 hours. That's why if we give it twice weekly, we need to wait 72 hours for the healthy cells to recover. Now, if you give it to a cancerous cell, they can't process these signals and they undergo apoptosis and they die in theory. And so that is pretty much the mechanism of axon. And we have new proteasome inhibitors such as carfilzomib coming out, which little different side effect profile, but it works very similarly, we think. One final question to you, Irene. Getting back to the transplant situation, the younger patient, let's put aside this patient's situation that made it a little more complicated because of the renal failure. So just sort of taking that out, thinking back to our survey that I was mentioning earlier, the biggest shift we've seen is towards triple therapy in general, lenalidomide, bortezomib, and dexamethasone, both in docs and practice as well as clinical investigators. When you're looking at these kinds of patients, how do you decide which induction regimen to use? And we've been talking a little bit about cytogenetics and high risk. Does that change the initial therapy for you? Yeah, absolutely. We know now that myeloma is not all one disease. It's actually several diseases in one. And we want to look at cytogenetics because it makes a difference what regimens you use. We know that some of those novel agents can overcome poor prognostic factors. We talked about that a little bit. And it just means that even if you had 13Q deletion or uh, 414 or some of other cytogenetics, if you give them a combination of bortezomib and lenalidomide and those drugs, they can have a good response 
response as well as someone who did not have those cytogenetics. So again, combinations of drugs are very good for us in multiple myeloma, especially if ortezomib, linalidomide, and dex combination to overcome some of those poor prognostic features. We know now that even with this new era, some of those prognostic features that we used to think of as bad ones may no longer be bad, and then new ones will come up. So even the prognostic features are changing with the treatment. So again, when we see a patient and they're young and you don't want to give them melphalan because of the option of transplant, linalidomide, bortezomib dex is an option, bortezomib taldex is an option, although Again, thalidomide versus linalidomide, you'd probably say, well, linalidomide is more potent and has less side effects. And then we're starting some clinical trials of four drug combinations and even more than that. Once you achieve a remission, you start saying, do you want to get the transplant or you don't? And in general, now we still mobilize stem cells and store them because of what Sagar just said. We don't know in the future, will we need to do a late transplant or not? So we offer it to everyone. It is one of our tools. It's not a mandate. You do not have to get to transplant. You can have transplant as an option. And then we talk about maintenance just after that. Even if they had the transplant or not, we know now that maintenance therapy is very important for myeloma. So we talk about linalidomide maintenance or bortezomib, and we have a lot of data now that supports maintenance therapy post-transplant in myeloma patients. Sagar, you were talking about in the non-transplant situation giving you know, a year or year and a half of therapy. And the question is, how many cycles of therapy do you give before you start, quote, maintenance? Yeah, I think usually what we do, for instance, if you follow the MPV, the VISTA regimen, they give roughly a year of melphalan-based approach, depending upon whether you give it every four weeks or every six weeks. I tend to err personally on the every six-week side just because I think it's easier on the counts to do it that way, but there's no clear-cut answer as to what the right duration is. So I think usually you want to give about a year of therapy and then switch at that point to maintenance unless patients are not tolerating therapy well, and that's where you sort of make decisions on the fly. How about the degree of their response? Does that affect how long you treat? It can. It can, although interestingly enough, in the VISTA trial, there was a subset that received abbreviated therapy, shorter duration, and had a great response, and then came off therapy versus patients, even with that good response that stayed on for a full year, and the people that stayed on for a full year actually did better. So there may be situations where you want to treat for a fixed duration of time.